Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The following report is a press release from people participating in Christmas at Tornillo, an occupation outside the Tornillo Detention Center located near El Paso, Texas. In 2018, the camp was supposed to be closed, but now is currently imprisoning at least 1,800 children and many others. The blockade was deployed around 6 p.m. as buses were approaching the camp entrance for a shift change. It included banners, different vessels of water, and a Christmas tree created with water jugs slashed by United States officials recovered from the desert by Nomas Muertes. Shift change was disrupted for an hour by the blockade, then police started to turn the buses around and clear signs and water from the road. Two activists that had been at Christmas in Tornillo since the start refused to leave the street, kneeled down, and surrounded themselves with water vessels from the blockade. After multiple warnings and threats of arrest, the two activists held their ground. Department of Homeland Security and El Paso County Sheriffs said that they would leave the scene without arrest and without the two leaving or dismantling the vigil. Once law enforcement cleared, the two committed to holding the vigil in the road until midnight. About 30 minutes later, Texas state troopers rolled up to the scene for the first time, threatening arrests and asking for identification. The two holding vigil were charged by Texas state troopers and the vigil was cleared. The water blockade inspires connections to movements across Turtle Island, which at the heart of them is the struggle for access to and protection of clean drinking water. In it, we see the struggles in Flint, indigenous struggles against the oil and gas industry, water privatization, the walks to bring water to migrants crossing the border in the desert, Palestinians being denied water in occupied territories, the criminalization of humanitarian aid, and holding those that have passed away in detention due to dehydration. The occupation lives on indefinitely if anyone feels called to join. In two dozen cities across North America, demonstrators gathered outside jails and prisons on New Year's Eve. These noise demos continue a decade-long rebellious tradition of ringing in the New Year alongside prisoners. While the Philadelphia march was dispersed too quickly for those inside the jail to hear and respond, prisoners in Sacramento clearly noticed the festive demonstration outside and danced along inside. In Tacoma, the noise demo was held outside the Northwest Detention Center, where some members of the caravan in Tijuana were just sent and where more than 30 prisoners are on hunger strike. Here is a statement by Northwest Detention Center Resistance. Tacoma, Washington. Up to 32 hunger strikers continue into their 13th day of food refusals in protest of deplorable conditions and abuse they face at the Northwest Detention Center, despite threats of solitary confinement and force feeding. The long list of abuses reported at the Northwest Detention Center include food served spoiled or with maggots and other bugs, payment of only a dollar per day, harassment from guards, and repeated denial of adequate medical attention. This round of hunger strikes began on Tuesday, December 11th, when up to 40 immigrants detained at the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma began refusing meals to protest the abhorrent conditions they face. People from additional pods joined the protest, and as of Friday, 32 were reportedly refusing food. One detained activist listed the group's demands as follows. Quote, 
I'm part of a group of detainees that are going to go on hunger strike as the only way to protest and shine a light on the abuses that we suffer here. We're going on strike because one, the abuse of the NWDC director, two, the abuse of the guards, three, the lack of medical attention, four, the bad food, five, the salary of $1 per day, and six, that they rob our property. Strikers have reported threats that they will be force-fed and sent to solitary confinement if they continue to strike or strike again in the future. Nevertheless, detained activists in two pods continue to refuse food. Quote, The persistence of these activists in the face of retaliation just goes to show how bad conditions really are in the detention center. End quote. States NWDC resistance member Andrea Marcos. One hunger striker released this statement, illustrating the lack of medical care in the facility and retaliation people detained face for speaking out about these conditions. Quote, I've had a throat infection for more than 15 days, and they've only given me salt and ibuprofen. Recently, myself and others from our pod have been receiving medical treatment from the officers. We went on a hunger strike and I lost more than 15 pounds, and I plan to continue the strike. It is not fair that they decreased our food and threatened to remove our tablet, TV, and phone yesterday. An officer threatened to send me to a punishment cell for not wanting to eat breakfast. End quote. The strike is the latest in a series of strikes protesting conditions inside this notorious facility. This strike is the latest in a series of strikes protesting conditions inside this notorious facility. It follows the November 24th death of hunger striker Amar Mergensana while in ICE custody in Tacoma. The Department of Homeland Security Office of the Inspector General has opened an investigation into the circumstances leading up to Mergensana's death. The fallout continues in Michigan, in the wake of the administrative cover-up of a homophobic murder, exposed by fellow prisoners who are now facing retaliation. The following is an update and call for solidarity from MAPS. MAPS, Michigan Abolition and Prisoner Support, is requesting the public call in to the Michigan Prison Administrators on Monday, January 7th, to demand an end to the harassment and abuse of Michigan Department of Corrections whistleblower Todd Wentworth. Todd is asking that folks call in to the Bellamy Creek Correctional Facility as well as the Office of Heidi Washington, director of MDOC, to show that people on the outside are paying attention to his treatment in the wake of speaking out about guard misconduct and neglect at Alger Correctional Facility. Here's some background. Last summer at Alger County Correctional Facility, a queer black prisoner named Rodriguez Montez Burks was being harassed and threatened by a homophobic cellmate. Burks repeatedly asked to be moved to a different cell, but the guards refused Burks' request for safety. Burks' cellmate finally snapped and killed Burks explicitly because of Burks' sexuality. We know the details of the guards' role in this murder because of a prisoner who witnessed the incident and was willing to speak to the media. That man is Todd Wentworth, and he has faced brutal and persistent retaliation because of his brave decision to speak up against the corruption and violence in the MDOC. Todd's testimony has also enabled a lawsuit against the MDOC related to the guard's role in this murder. The harassment against Todd has been ongoing since he first spoke up over a year ago. After facing repression from both corrections officers and administrators, at the Michigan Department of Corrections in the form of harassment and threats, they also interfered with his parole process for, quote, not minding his own business. MAPS, Michigan Abolition and Prisoner Support, recently received a letter from him in mid-October detailing some of the retaliation that he's faced over the past few months and also the extreme toll that this ordeal has taken on his mental health. He was transferred multiple times and was, each time, immediately harassed by the guards. He was threatened, given bogus tickets, and even thrown in the hole for calling a CO racist. 
Things got bad enough that he made a suicide attempt by overdose. In the ensuing ambulance ride, a guard broke Todd's pinky finger to threaten him, and just recently Todd had to undergo surgery to repair it. Maps notes. We should also clarify a detail about Todd. When he was a kid, he, according to himself, was hanging around with the wrong crowd. He got a few white power tattoos, some of which since he's covered up. We believe that his subsequent actions absolutely speak louder than any tattoo he got in his past, and we think he should be supported because of this. But we also want to be transparent in case anyone decides to look up the details about Todd online. The demands. That MDOC addresses and ceases all harassment by corrections officers and prison administrators against Todd. And threats by MDOC administration to deny Todd parole in retaliation for his whistleblowing. Transfer Todd back to a UP facility by the second week of January, as promised by Deputy Warden McCauley, so he can have regular visits with his son. For those who want to help Todd, they can call the Bellamy Creek Correctional Facility, Warden Tony Treeweiler, at 616-527-2510. Press 5 for departments, then press 9 for the Warden's office. And you may call MDOC Director Heidi Washington at 517-335-1426. And we'll have the numbers for that call-in on our KiteLine website. We're completing our series on Brazilian prisons this week by airing an interview sent to us by Benny and Josangela, who wanted to discuss her experiences with healthcare in the Brazilian prison system. Her account of deprivation of care, along with the over-application of psychiatric drugs, will be familiar to anyone who spent time inside an American prison. She likewise discusses the cuts made there to programs and education on the inside. In news this week, we share a statement from a hunger strike in an immigrant detention center in Washington state. The hunger strikers are making demands pointing to similar conditions of neglect and deprivation there, indicating the possibility of a shared struggle by prisoners across borders. Hello, my name is Benny. I'm a fourth year student in international relations at the University of Sao Paulo, and I'm currently taking the course Race, Class, and the American Prison, Today, I'm going to interview one of the participants of the social rehabilitation program we've been working with here at the Secretariat for Penitentiary Administration. Well, Rosângela, if you could introduce yourself to us. Uh, my name is Rosângela. I'm participating in the re-education program, and I was sentenced to 46 years, 10 months, and 25 days in prison. I've been in prison since the year... 2000 and served for 17 years and five months in full imprisonment before being given work release. I was allowed to visit my home one time, but I still live in prison. And uh, why did you choose to give an interview on the subject of health in the prison system? Because health is a topic that has everything to do with me. First of all, my body suffered a serious disfigurement due to a case of lipodystrophy, which was caused by six bullets fired at me by police during a confrontation. I received medical attention to help improve my condition, which was necessary because I needed my displaced fat tissue to be relocated to the right parts of my body through surgery. I was allowed to receive a few surgical treatments and physiotherapy sessions, but then the other female inmates at my prison started putting pressure on the prison director to allow them 
to do plastic surgery paid for by the government, insisting that my treatment was aesthetic and they had the right to receive the same privilege, which wasn't true, because there was a chance that I, I would have to live in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. And the clearance for my treatment was cancelled. Because of that, today my body is 60% atrophied. And that's why I chose to talk about health. Also, I wanted to discuss mental health. Because during these 18 years that I'm in prison, it's not my physical body that's in prison. It's my mind. I think if the prison system employed more occupational therapy sports, family engagement and psychological instead of psychiatric treatment, the carceral population would have much, much better mental health. Okay, we're going to circle back to the subject of psychology versus psychiatry later, because I'd like to hear your thoughts. But for now, I'd like to ask for more details about the difficulties you faced in treating your lipodystrophy, the obstacles imposed by prison authorities, by judges and by doctors, and the reactions you saw from your fellow inmates. I had no problems at all with judges and doctors. Actually, it was a female judge who made the decision to allow my publicly funded medical treatment, and the doctors always pushed for the treatment to continue. I only had problems with the other inmates who wanted to have plastic surgery paid for by the public system and used the argument that I was getting preferential treatment. They were all over the prison director, and since she didn't want any more trouble with them, she ended up canceling my treatment halfway through. Right. So the problem is much more present within the prison walls than in the courtroom. Exactly. Now, if we could talk a bit about mental health, which you mentioned at the beginning, uh, I want to ask how you felt during your years of full imprisonment, how you carried yourself through your daily routine. If you held on to the hope of eventually leaving, if you felt cornered or trapped, and how you react to the tragedy which happened to your son. The tragedy of my son was the beginning of all of this. When I lost my son, he was nine years old. He was brutally murdered, poisoned by his stepmother because she was jealous of my former lover and wanted to hurt him. That was when I committed my first crime, which was killing her. After that, I ran away to avoid going to jail and started stealing to survive. I made a lot of money off of stealing, and soon I started getting involved with international arms trafficking, which brought me a lot of wealth, power, and status. Then I started robbing banks and reached the highest point of my illusion and blindness of being rich, and then I was arrested just like everyone who does these things. Like I said, during my sentence, my body wasn't in prison, it was my mind. I was mentally stagnated during this, those 18 years. I had never made plans. I only started making plans for the future this year, in March. I didn't make any plans before that, because I was sentenced according to the law of the 30, which is a special legal mechanism for very serious crimes. It means you have to spend 30 years in prison, period. If it wasn't for the law of 30, 
I would have been sentenced to 76 years. One day I asked for help from a group of lawyers working pro bono, and they found lots of flaws and inconsistencies in my trials. This led to my sentence being reduced from 76 to 46 years, and because of that I was able to obtain a work release permit. Living in prison full-time is sort of a robotic. You are programmed to obey and do the exact same things every day, year after year. You have so much time to think that your thoughts end up becoming very circular and repetitive and you stop thinking about your future after prison. There are no plans. That's why people talk so much about mental health. The routine eventually makes everyone start losing their grip and they end up being given psychiatric treatment, which means drugs, insomnia and more drugs. And when you mention drugs, it doesn't mean illegal recreational drugs, right? It's drugs which are prescribed by psychiatric professionals. Exactly. If you were treated with more psychology instead of psychiatry, I think mental health in prisons would be much better. I can't stress that enough. In 2008, I tried to commit suicide. I didn't plan anything. I just got tired of hearing voices around me while I was working. I still have a problem with voices today. I can't stand to hear more than 10 people talking near me. I just went to my cell and swallowed a bunch of psychotropic pills that my cellmate stored away instead of consuming. I didn't think about anything. I wasn't consciously planning to kill myself. I just happened spontaneously. I was in a coma for 22 days after that. I nearly died, but the prison staff took care of me. Like I said, when you're in prison, it's your mind that's trapped. Female prisons have much more luxury than male ones. If a female inmate breaks a nail, she'll get medical attention. There are privileges that many people outside of prison don't have. But there's also a constant feeling of psychological pressure, of limited free will. The time you spend in the shower is limited, your eating habits are controlled, your letters are opened and examined before being mailed. You even have to be careful with what you say to the psychologists who are professionals and are there to take care of you. This imprisonment inside yourself eventually drives you crazy. The worst things about living in prison are the feeling of missing the outside world and the obligation to share living space with other inmates. Um, why did you have problems sharing space with other inmates? It wasn't me who had problems. Everyone did. It even reached the point of physical aggression between us. Try taking different people with different backgrounds and opinions in a prison cell with nothing to do, day and night. Anything becomes a reason to fight when you're on edge like that. Oh, you took too long in the shower and didn't leave any water for me. Oh, you left the light on when I went to sleep. It's easy to pick a fight. At a certain moment, you mentioned the loss of sanity that happens to everyone at some point. I want to take the opportunity to discuss the penitentiary mental hospital you said they sent you to for some time. 
not because you had psychiatric issues, but because it was a multi-purpose facility which also housed inmates who were especially troublesome and needed to be kept in isolation, right? Could you please talk about what happened in there to the psychiatric patients and to the other inmates? Being sent there was like going to hell. I've been to hell. In there, people go hungry and thirsty on a daily basis and suffer physical and psychological torture. As one of the non-psychiatric inmates, I was allowed to eat a small loaf of bread with a cup of tea for breakfast. And then, for lunch, they gave me some rice and a boiled egg and repeated the same thing for dinner. You go hungry. And the psychiatric inmates are responsible for bringing you your food. But they often steal it. They were hungry and usually drugged. They got beaten up a lot. If we complained that we were hungry or anything else, we were sent to confinement as punishment. A white room with a camera pointed at you. They make you put on a diaper and strap you to a stretcher, inject you with a tranquilizer and keep you there for maybe three days. And maybe you wake up and they let you go. You barely even remember your own name. I knew some of the psychiatric inmates, and I remember seeing three of them die of old age in there. <laughs> All of them had been in the mental hospital for more than 20 years, because once you're sent there for medical treatment, you can only leave with permission of, from a psychiatrist. No matter how long your sentence originally was, it was hell. Many people think that If prisoners act like they're going crazy, the judges will take pity on them and allow them to serve their sentences in house arrest. This is actually possible for people with lots of money, but the poor inmates are sent to the penitentiary mental hospital and things there are so bad that you might come out of your confinement without even remembering your own name. It's cruel, very cruel. I would like to gain a better understanding of your opinion that therapy would be more beneficial to prisoners than psychiatric treatment. From what I've gathered so far, you're not a big fan of drug-based treatment and would prefer that they employed more con conversational and occupational therapy. Could you elaborate? Teaching the inmates useful skills through occupational therapy is great. Keeping us close to our families is great, and that includes anything from a hug to a conjugal visit, which they sometimes don't allow. But they don't want to listen to your complaints and address them fairly. You complain about your things and they send you to the psychiatrist right away. It's good for them putting you in, on medication. That way you quiet down and don't try their patients. If an inmate claims their basic rights aren't being respected, it's considered an, an annoyance that needs to be silenced. If we had access to more psychoanalysis, occupational therapy, social work, sports, then mental health in the prison system would be a lot better. Instead, they put us on medication and people lose their grip so badly that you can't have a conversation with them anymore. One time, I complained to a psychiatrist that I was suffering from insomnia because some thoughts I, I had were really troubling me. He gave me a prescription for Amitril, Diazepam, Clonazepam, and Levozin, 
all of them meant to help me sleep. The levosin had the opposite effect on me, and I couldn't sleep for 15 days. That made me look like I was actually insane, because I was unable to walk and kept drooling all over the place. Is that good? No. If they had sent me to a psychologist, I would have been able to talk about what was bothering me and maybe cry a little, which would have been much more helpful than putting me on heavy medication. But again, for the people in charge, it's easier to incapacitate us with drugs because then we don't complain. We don't fight for our rights. That's the reality in prison. So you felt like you were a burden to them, a problem they were trying to get rid of. Did you feel like, instead of helping you recover and become a better person in preparation for re-entering society, they were just keeping you subdued until you reached the end of your sentence? They insist on calling us prisoners. They never cared about our rehabilitation and our life after prison. To them, we were just numbers, counted four times a day. I was prisoner number 75. If you spot me on the street one day and call out, Hey, Rosangela, I probably won't even notice. If you call out, Hey, 75, then I will look. We're not human beings to them. All they care about is the money we generate while working in prison. They love to provoke us with verbal abuse so that we will get angry and assault them which will mean another two or three years added to your sentence for them. It's good business. It's what they want. Now, taking into account the dehumanizing and violent treatment you've received from these people who don't care about your rehabilitation, how important do you think it is for you to come here to these meetings with the SAPI group and more recently with the USPI students? Speaking from personal experience, I think it's incredibly important that they treat us like humans here. I feel like a person here, and I feel important. I've been improving my ability to deal with people a lot, and the proof of that is this interview I'm doing. The work they do here has helped me feel like I'm part of society again, and I feel like I'm becoming a better person. I think it's very important that you decided to open up about, about these things in this interview. Our time is running short, so I'd like to ask you to conclude by summarizing how you think healthcare in the prison system could improve, and also what are your expectations for the future of the system? I don't want to repeat anything I've said before, so I'll just emphasize that mental health in the prison system would be much better if they offered more access to occupational therapy, psychologist appointments, conjugal visits, sports, social work, and being treated as a human being in general. And about the future, I think the system in Brazil will never improve. Never. Because no one gets rehabilitated in there. That's why the number of former prisoners who commit further crimes and go back to jail is so high. And as for my plans for the future, I don't know what I'm going to do because a note section of my original sentence was reinterpreted this week and I might have to go back to serving full time in prison soon. I had started to make plans for the future, but they were taken away from me. Rosângela, 
We're reaching the end of our interview, and I'd like to thank you very much for being so open and forthcoming about what we discussed. It's obvious from the tone of your voice that these things are very sensitive and important to you, and it's very brave of you to talk about them so honestly, especially to someone whom you've only known for a short time. Thank you. I also want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to open up about my history, about what I've seen, about my routine in the process of rehabilitation. Thank you. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. We also encourage your feedback. You can email us at kiteline at wfhb.org. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to tell your story or to record a message to a loved one behind bars at 812-269-2512. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions shared on the show. Please join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.